You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're going to continue in our worship as we turn to God's Word. Here is where we, we bring our hearts, our ears, the, the, our, the eyes of our heart to see what God has for us, to hear what He has for us, and um, to be reverent and open uh, to hearing His truth so that we can glorify Him, and live according to it. We're going to be in uh, chapter 9 today of Hebrews. We've been walking through the book of Hebrews for about 10, 11 weeks. It's been a great journey. We're right here, kind of close to the middle of our time together. And uh, I'll be reading the first 14 verses, so you can open up your Bible or follow along on the screen. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship, and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he goes once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed into the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of the goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is God's word. Well, mouthful there, a lot of detail about this tabernacle, about this Old Testament covenant, this place of worship, this place of God's presence and dwelling. This passage today is so fun. I need to tell you that it is so fun to think about and to work through. We're going to have a good time. It is of incredible significance for the Christian today. Today's passage deals with the essence and practice of worship, the worship of God. Worship was the essential core of the life of the people of God in the Old Testament. Worship was everything about their life. It's what distinguished them from from other nations and other people that they worship this, the God who made himself known as Yahweh, the one and only true God. He, 
distinguished himself as the only true God, and the worship of God was the distinguishing feature that set apart the Hebrew people from everyone else in the world. Worship is this word that means to ascribe worth. In modern times, we might describe worship as an act of singing, and some of us might even go further and talk about worshiping God as a, as a way of life, but we're introduced in this passage to this concept of worship being this radical reorientation of everything in our lives to the praise of God's glory. Singing can be worship. Serving can be worship. Speaking can be an act of worship. Being silent can be an act of worship. Um, Sleeping and seeking rest from our work can be an act of worship. Getting up and working hard and being diligent can be an act of worship. Because God is creator of all and Lord over all, there is no area of life that cannot be radically reoriented towards his glory. That's the whole reason we exist. And so for the Old Testament people of God, there was nothing more foundational in their relationship with God than how they worshiped him. And that is why God lays it out so clearly, so specifically, in such minute detail of how to worship him, because their worship of God was central to their life. And there was a way to do it right, and there was a way to do it wrong. And guess what? It's still the same today. Our worship of God is the most central thing about us. It is the distinguishing feature that separates us from every other people, every other religion in the world. There was nothing more foundational to our lives than how we worship God, and it's the same today. The worship of God matters. The worship of God is relevant. The worship of God is is never unimportant. It's never not a hot topic. It's never irrelevant for our lives. We were made to worship. The worship of God was and is and forever will be our highest goal, our greatest purpose of our existence. It's the greatest thing in all of our lives. And so that's why this passage is really fun. Because it's really fun because we get to become familiar with the Old Testament way of worship. And in doing that, we get to see how worship in the Old Covenant, with the old people of God, was meant to inform and shape our worship today with deep meaning and significance and deep truth. The forms of worship today are different from the forms of worship then, but they both point to the same truth. And if we can learn of this old form of worship, we can see the significance in it, and I think it will breathe meaning and reality and truth into our worship today. As we will see more clearly in a moment, they were given this external form of worship, and we, were, we are given a spiritual form, and it makes our worship today mediated through Jesus Christ, the promised Savior, greater, more developed, and more sufficient for our needs today. We have a greater worship of God. We have a more fleshed out, a more full, a more a deeper understanding and developed idea of what it means to worship God, who he is, and what he has done for us. And so our worship today is greater because we have a greater mediator, Jesus Christ. But the writer of Hebrews takes great care to recapture this old covenant worship. And we should not brush it aside and think of it as, oh, this is just the old way of doing things, and we should, 
we have a new way of doing it. We should look back, as the author does of Hebrews, look back at this old way and put ourselves in the experience of the Old Testament people, asking ourselves, what did their experience of worship and why did they worship? How does it inaugurate our greater worship of Jesus? What can we learn from that? And so we want to take a look at the tabernacle. We want to look at this passage. As you see, it goes into great detail, and we shouldn't just brush it aside. It's there for a purpose. And every first century uh, Jewish person reading and receiving this letter for the first time doesn't need to be told about these details. They knew it full well. Full well. They knew it. They lived this. This was part of their life. And so there's a reason why the author is recapturing and reminding them of these details. Tabernacle just simply means tent. Right? So when God's people were rescued from Egypt and slavery and bondage uh, to Pharaoh and the Egyptian soldiers for 400 years, they were rescued by the powerful and merciful hand of God, and they wandered in the desert for 40 years onto their way to Canaan, the promised land that God would give to them. And in that time of waiting and wandering, God instructed Moses to erect a tent, a tabernacle, and this would be symbolic of God's real, present dwelling. God would dwell with his people and be with them, and he would minister to them. It would be the place where uh, Moses would go in and, and mediate between God and the people. It expressed the reality of God's presence among his people. To tell them, you're, you're not alone and I am with you. As you wander in the wilderness, I am with you and I will never forsake you. The tent would be moved as the people of God would move. And at the time of this writing, there was a temple that replaced the tabernacle in Jerusalem that was a fixed building. So when you think of the temple in Jerusalem, that was a more modern and more uh, recent uh, permanent building in Jerusalem. But it started with a tent in the desert. This is a diagram of the tabernacle. I want you to look at this. Here's what it looked like in the desert, right? You had this, this uh, here's a fun perspective. I think it would be fun for a lot of you. The tabernacle in the wilderness was actually smaller than this room. Probably about half of this room, that whole inner tent, that whole tabernacle was about as small as this room. And the Holy of Holies, when you think about the Holy of Holies, it's like a 15 by 15 foot cube. It's like a little storage unit, <laughs> So many times we think of the tabernacle, we think of this grand, elaborate, uh, gigantic room that would bring us awe, but it was about the size, about the half the size of actually this room. So much can be learned from just observing how God instructed the tabernacle to be built. The first thing you notice that I notice about this is access, right? We have this outer curtain, like a f not even the size of a football field curtain. You could not get into it. There was one entrance and you could not get into it. If you wanted to be close to God, if you wanted to have his presence, his felt presence, what comes to mind? It's not an easy task. There's a lot of things you got to go through. You got to go through this outer curtain, and then if you do get through the outer curtain, you're greeted by a bunch of livestock, a bunch of bulls and cows that are fighting aggressively to not be slaughtered. You see all those tables there? Those are slaughtering tables. Yeah, those aren't coffee tables for like hanging out, those are slaughtering tables. And then right in the middle of that courtyard is this huge bonfire, not to stay warm. This was to offer meat that was sacrificed for the sins of the people. And so the priests would come into that courtyard, slaughter these bulls, they would eat the food for themselves, and then the sin offering had to be 
burnt up completely, not a trace of it left over. That was just to get in. You had to make it, and then you had to go to this big, looks like a big fountain. Then the priests had to wash their hands. And so the slaughter of these bulls was to signify the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. The sin offering was made on the altar there and burned up in the fire. Your sin has to go somewhere. You can't approach God without your sin going somewhere. It has to be dealt with. And it has to be placed on the innocent animal, on this innocent creature. And then they go and wash at this water, at this fountain. And so where the bulls signify the shedding of blood, the water would signify the washing away of sins. They would wash their hands and they would wash their bodies. They've had to do a lot of work before they even get into the tabernacle. Then they had to make it past the first set of curtains. And that's not even into the holy, that's the holy place. And then there's like a holy of holy place. You've heard the most holy place, our passage says. But no one could go in there. No one could go in there. There was a, this had to be the, the high priest. And the high priest could only go in there once a year. Access to God is restricted. Old Testament Jewish person reading this in the first century gets this loud and clear as they're thinking about the temple and the tabernacle. They're realizing no one can go in there. Not just anyone can go in there. And the one who could go in there was the high priest, and he could only go in there once a year. They knew the tabernacle. They knew that access to God was restricted. Don't miss this important point, because we're going to talk about how Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant worship, a greater worship, a greater access to the presence of God. Inside the outer curtain, after that first curtain, you see a couple things. You see an altar, and there's this blazing fire pit out there and you see the altar and then you go into this curtain and you see a table and a candlestick, a candelabra with seven arms and on the table was bread and the bread had to stay fresh and the candle had to be lit and the high priest had one job, don't let the fire go out because the fire, and this is interesting if you look throughout the Bible, not just here, fire represents the presence of God. And what does that say if you go in, you go through this first curtain and it feels like a living room? It feels like someone lives there. You know, it's, it's, this is more homey. There's, there's ambiance and there's lighting and there's food, like food has been set out for, for someone to eat. Imagine going into a home, you could probably tell if someone's been there recently or if someone hasn't been there for weeks. You see a candle burning. Good chance that someone's been there recently or maybe there now. If you go in there and there's like some food and it has this, all this green fuzz over it. Maybe someone hasn't been there in a long time. The purpose was clear. God is home. He is here. And the job of the high priest was to make sure the candle is burning and the, food is only, the bread is always fresh. It's probably like a living room. And then there was another large curtain into the entrance of the most holy place. And this was that square chamber, 15 feet by 15 feet. Only one person could go in there one day a year, the Day of Atonement. There was a big curtain keeping normal people out into the tabernacle. And then there was another curtain keeping normal priests out. And so you see these levels of access. Normal people could say hi to the cows. 
Normal priests could go into the first curtain. Not anybody could go into the second. It had to be one, one priest, one high priest. And in this room was one permanent article of furniture. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And in that Ark of the Covenant, it was a box that had three items, we are told. A golden urn holding the manna that God sent from heaven to feed and provide for his starving people in the desert. Aaron's staff that had grown flowers and buds on it. And then stone tablets that, that wrote the Ten Commandments, that contained the Ten Commandments. And on the lid were, of the ark were these two cherubim, these angelic beings covering their eyes uh, and be- covering their eyes, and then between them, as they faced each other, between them is called the mercy seat. And it was bet- in that space, in that small space, we are told that the glory of God dwelled. Here's what, probably what that ark looked like. And is, you know, not, so not many people have seen it, but Harrison Ford has been there, and he has seen it. This is actually probably a pretty close you know, diagram or or rendition of what it looked like and its size and covered in gold and even what the cherubim looked like. What's the point of all this? Let's return to our passage. What What is the point of all this? The original audience of this passage didn't need to hear these details. You do, I think, because it's not familiar to us. You're like, oh, okay. Some of you are like, okay, that I, I never really thought, yeah, I didn't know the tabernacle, I've heard about it. This wasn't the first century audience. They, they knew it, they lived it, they were part of it. It was written on their cultural DNA. They knew all the details. But telling it in detail was driving home a very clear point. The earthy tabernacle was real. Worship was real and important, and how we worship God is so important. It's vital to the life of God's people, but it was not enough. You see the flaws in this way of worship, access to God. I mean, even the people, a million, a million Hebrews in the wilderness, a million, and they know God is somewhere out there. He's close. We have this visible representation of him, but we don't feel close. We, can't, we can see the smoke going up that represents God's presence. We know the candle's burning. We know that the, the, the bull has been sacrificed. We know that the incense is burning, but we can't be there with God. We don't feel his presence. We just have to take your word for it. And then for those who could make access, I mean, they had, to make access, they had to make purification for their own sins. And then when they got into the Holy of Holies, it was only one time a year, and they had to go back every single year. And it almost makes you think, well, what was so insufficient about those high priests? Why couldn't they make a sacrifice and just do it once and for all? They had to keep going in over and over and over again. It wasn't enough. It paled in comparison to the greater dwelling place of God that we are told. The greater high priest, the greater sacrifice that would be made uh, through Jesus Christ, the greater worship that you and I can engage in because of Jesus and what he has done for us. Look at the limitations of this model. Sacrifices were messy and chaotic. Animals fighting, you know, animals don't come willingly to be slaughtered. The chaos, the sounds, the mess. The inconvenience of it all. It was terrifying in the most holy place. I mean, think about that. Think about that trip from that outer curtain. You're doing all this work. You're making all these sacrifices. You're cleaning up. You're doing all the rituals. You're playing it through your mind. I hope I did everything right. And then you get into this small 15 by 15 foot box, and there's angels in there covering their eyes. 
because they can't even look at the glory of God is so terrifying, so majestic, so amazing and frightening that they can't even look at it. Angels who have never done anything wrong and never sinned stand in awe and in terror in the presence of God and you're there alone as a, as a human person, a sinful person right there in the presence of God. You feeling good? You're feeling scared. You're feeling terrified. You're feeling like, let me do what I came to do and let me get out of here as quick as I can, hopefully alive. And in fact, they wore bells. We were told that they wore bells on their feet because you could hear the bells, and if you could hear the bells, you knew they were walking around. And if you didn't hear the bells, you knew they were dead. And they were tied to a rope so you can pull them out. Okay, so, the, so this is inconvenient, right? A little different. We have greater worship now, so we see we have better access it was so limited. Even the priests got, that got through all of these tabernacles, there's a sense that you still weren't in the full presence of God. You were in this like, they were, you were in this like, uh, not even the real substance of God, but almost like a, a, a type, a metaphor, a, an image that represented his presence. But ex- a true expression of his presence it's something that they wanted and desired. It was so limited. It makes us wonder, what if we had access to God? What if we didn't have a barrier after barrier after barrier? What if we didn't have ritual after ritual after ritual to worship God, to know our sins are forgiven once and for all, to, to not be afraid as we approach God, but in confidence draw near as Hebrews tells us. Delighted, encouraged, knowing we have his affection, knowing we have his grace, knowing we have his help in times of need. See, Jesus changes all of that. That is the point of Hebrews and specifically this passage as we think about our access to God, our worship of God, our confidence in his presence This brings greater significance to the fact that we are told that at the very moment Jesus dies on the cross, there is this earthquake that rumbles and the inner curtain that separates the most holy place from the people of God is torn from top to bottom. Coincidence? There is this curtain that says, access denied. And Jesus dies on the cross, and that curtain is ripped open. Something greater has come, greater access, greater privilege. And this is where the author of Hebrews takes us in verse 11. We've spent a a lot of time describing the tabernacle, but that's on purpose, and it's on purpose for the author, and it drives home a point. But Jesus appears as the greater high priest with a greater sacrifice to give us greater access to God, to secure for us greater eternal redemption. And here's the argument as we turn back to our passage and to the topic of worship. If worship under an imperfect model was the distinguishing feature of the old covenant people of God and their highest goal and their greatest aim in all of life, then how much greater significance should it be in ours who have a fully developed and now worship God with full access, full confidence, and full truth. How much more important is it for us? You see how detailed, how important, how, how uh, intricate 
and how, how worship was so significant to the life of the Old Testament people. And they were worshiping as a type, as a shadow that pointed to something more true. And now we have that more true. How much more important is our worship to God? Much more important, much more significant, much more central to everything we do. I said earlier, I'll say it again, the worship of God matters. It's never unimportant. It is never irrelevant. It's never not a hot topic. The worship of God was, is, and forever will be our highest goal and our greatest purpose for our existence. And now we have greater reason to make it so. God provided his people in the old covenant with rituals and rhythms in their life to help them remember his provisions for salvation, to reorient their hearts to God, to reimagine their habits in light of his commands, and God gives rituals and rhythms for us today to do the same. We gather on the Lord's Day, we make that journey from that outer curtain, from our scattered lives to a place of communion with God, we, they are given external pictures and shadows and types to speak of a truth, and we are given spiritual truth. We worship in spirit and in truth. Entering from the parking lot through the sanctuary doors and into your seat, you're not getting closer to God. But these are rhythms that shape our lives. We gather to remember God. We gather to reorient our hearts to him. We gather to, to reimagine how his truth shapes our lives and how we live according to his commands. You see, our Sunday rhythm of gathering together is an act of obedience to make the worship of God the greatest purpose of our existence. What are we doing here? Why do we do this? Why do we get out of bed on our day off <laughs> and do this? It is because it is these rhythms that is an act of obedience to shape our lives according to the worship of God that is even more important than it was a long time ago? Is it necessary to gather? Is it necessary to make the regular weekly pilgrimage and trek and to gather together? Is it, is it necessary to make this a habit of our life? The author of Hebrews tells us later on in chapter 10, he says, don't neglect this gathering don't neglect meeting with one another. It, this, this act of meeting doesn't save us. This act of meeting doesn't offer a sacrifice to God for the forgiveness of our sins. But the habit is just as transforming. The rituals don't save us, but they can accomplish some very important things that we need as it accomplished important things that the old covenant people needed. As a way of application, let's talk about some of those things. We'll talk about three today that are kind of demonstrated in this passage that are the same for the Old Testament people, using kind of the old rituals and kind of looking at how that's important for us today. Here is why we gather. We gather to remember who God is and what he has done for us. Imagine again the tabernacle. Tabernacle worship. There was about, this was about getting face-to-face -face with history. You know, looking at the tabernacle together and reading this passage and retelling this for the original listeners and hearers of this letter. It's about getting face-to-face -face with history. Who God is, what did he do? 
The tabernacle, everything is a story. It's telling a story. They were given a material form of remembering God. Consider the manna in the Ark of the Covenant. So you get into there. There's three items in there. There's the manna in a golden urn. There's Aaron's bud. And there's the Ten Commandments. Consider the manna. Why was it there? It's there like a time capsule. It's, like, it's there as a time capsule of remembrance, of knowing, wait, let's, this tells a story. We were, what story does it tell? Well, we were once enslaved. We were once people without a nation, people without a home, people without a, a, a God to worship. And God rescued us. We were oppressed and, and enslaved in a foreign land. And God saved us. He redeemed us through his power, with his powerful hand. He crushed our enemies and he gave us a promise and he's leading us to that promise. And when we were hungry and starving and felt without hope, God made it rain from the heavens, food for us. God provides for all of our needs. Let's remember that. Let's remember his rescue, his salvation, his provision, that he will get us to where he has promised we will go. If you had a time capsule, maybe some of you have done this. I don't know, maybe your families have done it or neighborhoods or you know some people will do this they'll, they'll make a time capsule and they'll bury it and then years later they'll unearth it and kind of remember those times you know, if you have a time capsule what, what, what important things would you put in there i don't know like a like a receipt from the gas station or something like when gas was below two dollars a gallon oh yeah remember that <laughs> you know you put important things in there things that stirred up your memory things you look at and say this tells a story of my life that I don't want to forget. And when you begin to forget, it's good to remember. It, when, you, when you begin to forget that story, it's good to open that urn up and see that manna and be reminded of the manna. This is in there. That's what the manna was there for, to remind them of how God provided for them when they were hungry and without food. They were dying of starvation, and God made it rain bread from the sky. Several years ago when I, I visited Norway, and that was, uh, it was a great time, but their, their food habits were a little different than American food habits. Uh, and for breakfast, they had bread. It was like, okay, that's good. Where's the rest of the breakfast? That's good. You know, where's my eggs? Where's the bacon? You know, none of that. It's just bread. And I was like, that's okay. You know, lunch is coming, and I can get through breakfast. Well, lunch came, and it was bread. Yeah, bread, <laughs> breakfast, and lunch. And then dinner came, and it was bread and cheese. I didn't poop for like two weeks. And, uh, sorry, I got to stay to my script. Okay. <clears throat> and, and it's like, what's happening here? It's, well, because, you know, we have bread as an accompany, like, bread is a vehicle for cheese and butter, right? But not for them. Bread was a staple. Bread was their life. Bread was how they ate. That's why they're so tall. I, I don't know what it is, but. In the ancient East, bread was life. Bread wasn't um, a side item on your plate of food. Bread was your food. It was life. It was your sustenance. It was your provision. And so there's meaning here when you come into the inner curtain or the first curtain and, and what's there? It's a table with bread on it. And often the priests would eat that bread with wine, which is significant and symbolic, of course. And in John chapter 6, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. He's, I am your life. And the manna that came from heaven, Jesus is saying that, that I came from heaven and I went back up to heaven. I am your provision. I am your life. I am your sustenance. As bread 
satisfies and heals and matures the body, so I do for your very life and your soul. I give spiritual food. God provides, God works miracles, God knows our needs, and ultimately he sent his son to die for us. And we need to explicitly spell this out every time we gather. We gather to remember. And so we tell a story from our singing to our praying to our giving to our teaching to our listening to our uh, confessing. All of that is telling a story because we are in constant danger of forgetting. We scatter through our lives and we forget that God provides for our needs. We forget that Jesus is our Savior. He rescues us. We forget that our very spiritual lives are a miraculous work of God. If you believe in Jesus and trust in him, you are a walking miracle. You have the the imprint and fingerprints of the miraculous work of God on your life. You're a new creation. It's this oh yeah moment when we gather, we are supposed to remember what God has done for us, who he is. He takes a sinful man, woman, and child, and he pours his love into us and promises to never leave us. And when they remember the manna in that golden urn, it was this prize. They were given this this physical remembrance of a spiritual truth that God is all that we need. He feeds us. So as you go from church, from our gathering time, you are meant to, to go into your life remembering the story that's been told. Remembering that God is enough. Remembering who you are, that you have been brought out from a land of slavery, of spiritual sin, and into a life of righteousness with God. And whatever challenges you face around the corner, and whatever uncertainties are ahead of you, and whatever fears that you have, God provides for you. He is with you. He is ministering to you. I need that every week. I need that multiple times a week. But we come in this rhythm. We come in this rhythm because we forget. But it's not the only thing that we gather to do. We also gather to reorient our hearts to God because facts aren't enough. We need to not just be told a story and give uh, intellectual assent to uh, a set of facts and information. We need to realize that you and I are completely dependent on God and realize that we are constantly in danger of this heart drift. For our affections, our desires, our dreams, our hopes to drift from depending on God and starting to depend on other things. This is called heart idolatry. This is, this is just idol worship when we take good things and put them in the wrong place and wrong significance in our life. When the opinions of others matter more than the opinions of God. When the affection and approval of others matter more than the affection and approval of God. The second item in the ark was Aaron's staff that budded. Now, there's a story in the Old Testament. It's found in Numbers. And this is really interesting. In Numbers chapter 16 and 17, we're given the story of this context of Aaron's staff. And here's the thing. Aaron's the high priest. So he was the one in the wilderness that was allowed to go through all of those rituals and go into the presence of God. And many people, remember, there's a million Hebrews. Many of these men and heads of the different clans of the Jewish people came to Aaron and Moses and said, not fair. (laughs) 
Why do you get to go in there? We want, we want to be in God's presence. In fact, we want to worship God the way we want to worship God. Why go through all of these rituals? Let's get it done already. Let's just go to the promised land. Let's just, why are we doing this? It's stalling our progress. And so they bring this to God, and there's this debate, and they bring this case of the leaders of the clans to God, and God says, okay, I'm going to put forward a contest. Everybody grab, their, grab a stick. <laughs> grab a stick. Everybody put your stick in a room. Aaron, grab your staff, put it in a room. Everybody else, get one stick for every family that is represented in this whole nation and put the stick in there. And here's the deal. Whoever's stick starts to grow flowers, you can be in charge. And guess how many grew flowers? Aaron's. That's it. And not just Aaron's, but Aaron grew branches and flowers, and we were told it grew a whole harvest of almonds. <laughs> and God said, put that in the ark as a remembrance. You worship me the way I tell you to worship me. Aaron is the one I've chosen, and we're doing it this way. And to remind ourselves that when we rebel against God, it's never right. It's never good. Our ideas are never better than God's. And it's also there to remind us that we are prone to do that. We are prone to rebel against God. We're prone to let our hearts drift, to think that, that we want to become autonomous, that we want to do it our way, that God's ways are complicated. Did he really say that? Is that are those really his commands? Do we have to really do this? And God says, well, let's have a contest. You want to do another contest? Every contest, God's undefeated, by the way. He's done a lot of contests. <clears throat> He's had a lot of contests. We're prone to sin. God told Moses, put his stick in the ark as a reminder that our hearts are prone to rebel against God, and we need to come acknowledging that, repenting of our sins, and asking for God's mercy. A whole generation of people died in the wilderness because of their rebellion. 40 years they were there, 40 years worth of people died because of their rebellion. And we are to come and not just look upon the wonderful things that God has done, but also acknowledge our dependency on God and how we are prone to sin. That's why we have a place of confession of sin in our time of worship. Because, because getting face to face with God will reveal two very important things the glory and majesty and love of God, and also our undeserving nature. When people come in the presence of God in Scripture, it's, it's never, there's never this reaction of, I'm so glad I'm here, I'm so glad I deserve to be here. It's one of terror and fear. When Isaiah, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he comes face to face with God in the heavenly, in the heavenly uh, throne room, he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He's like, I just want to crawl into a hole. I'm so terrified right now. I don't deserve to be in front of God. And there is this posture of humility, a posture of honesty, a posture of confession and repentance that we need to be in every, every day and continually throughout our lives, that we need God's mercy. It's all mercy all the way. And so we reorient our hearts to God when we come to worship. And, and lastly, we the final item in the Ark of the Covenant shows us that we gather to re reimagine our habits in light of God's commands. God's commands were put in the Ark of the Covenant. The tablets where the Ten Commandments were written on. The law was given to God's people after they were rescued from slavery. 
not before. And that's important because the law does not save us, but the law is given to us after we are saved. God gives us his grace, he rescues us with his, by his mercy, and then he says, and here is my will for you. Here's the life that I am calling you to live for my glory and your joy. And, and, and here's the question for us, can we truly have an encounter with God and remain unchanged? What's in the ark, right? It's, it's the manna and God's provision. It is, it is the bud of, Aaron, the, of Aaron's staff, Aaron's staff that budded, that reminds us that our hearts are prone to drift. But more than that, God is, is giving us his commands. He's giving us his word. He is giving us his, his instructions so that we can live according to his glory. We remember God's will for us, not just coming to celebrate his grace and remember that we are forgiven, but to align our lives according to his word. How can we have a confrontation with God in our worship as we sing and praise and confess and then hear his instruction when we open up the Bible and then go live our lives exactly like the way we came in? We have to change. Not in order to get his love, not to secure his love and acceptance, but because we have it. And because he has called his people to live according to his will. A follower of Jesus is not just an ordinary person, but just a little better. It's not, you're not an ordinary person and just a little better. You're a new creation. The goal of our life is not just to go live a little bit better than everybody else. The goal of our life is to live as, as rescued people, held and sustained by his grace and called to a destiny that is forever in fellowship with him, radically reorienting everything in our life our habits, our dreams, our fears, our recreation, our ambitions, our words, and our thoughts according to the word of God. Because if we know the blessings of Christ, when we remember the story and what God has done for us, how could we do anything but offer to him our entire life? If your life was a sermon, would it preach of Jesus? They say that about preachers. It's, it's not a sermon until you preach about Jesus, until it gets to Jesus. It's not a sermon. Is your life a sermon that preaches about Jesus? To tell this story, this story of, of, of what God has called us to, one of holiness, one of righteousness, and our failure to live up to that because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because our hearts that are wicked and deceived. And in needing to, to have our sin forgiven through the shedding of blood and through the washing of the word. Trusting in Jesus, acknowledging our sin, confessing to him and saying, Jesus is my way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the high priest, as our passage tells us, that he is the one that journeyed through all of those things. He made sacrifice, not with the blood of goats, but with his own blood. He gave himself. He went into the holy of holies. He was from heaven and went back to heaven. He died on the cross as a sinless, sinless man. And his very life was that incense to God that was accepted by God for the penalty of our sins so that we can be forgiven. The high priest made these sacrifices on behalf of the people of God. Jesus is the greater high priest with a greater offering in a greater holy of holies 
the work of Jesus warrants a response. This means that even in the life of a Christian, there is a need to continually orient our life back to a life that worships him. We need to come back every Sunday to do that, to be reminded of it, to reorient our hearts, and to reimagine our lives in light of the truth of God. We don't check out, we don't check our brains at the door when we come into church and just believe what we're told. We look at God's story. We open up our hearts. We pray that we are transformed by it. And then we go into our lives scattered in our different roles. Our roles of of mom and dad and worker and citizen. Bearing witness to the truth. Worshiping God. Our life is a life of worship completely. And his grace is with us and his Holy Spirit dwells with us.